All right, tonight we're coming to the penultimate line or, or session of our study, and with it to a single phrase, the forgiveness of sins. That's the line for tonight. It's perhaps the sweetest line in the whole creed. We've already said at this point in the study, we've already said quite a bit about this truth uh, at different times, about the forgiveness of sins. I mean, especially in the week that we talked about that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. In that particular week, we talked about uh, the necessity of the cross, and, and um, we talked about the forgiveness of sins. Then we talked about the forgiveness of sins when we talked about Jesus' descent to the dead. We talked about it in terms of his resurrection and his ascension, his priestly work. We talked about the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. So when we come to this phrase tonight, I believe in the... the, the the, the forgiveness of sins, I had to consider how do we approach this? How do we approach it in a way that's not simply repeating all that we've already said in so many weeks on different topics as it pertains to the forgiveness of our sins? How does his descent and his resurrection and his ascension and his death on the cross pertain to our forgiveness? I felt impressed for us to think about this line tonight mainly from one particular angle, especially tonight, which, um, yeah, it's a needed word for us. So let's begin with God's word, though. Colossians chapter 1. I didn't tell you to turn there. Colossians. We're going to start in Colossians chapter 1. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you get to First and Second Thessalonians, you've gone too far. This is just a place to begin, to begin orienting our thoughts to the biblical truth of the forgiveness of sins. When you have found Colossians chapter 1, look with me beginning in verse 9, and I'll read through verse 14. Paul writes, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened and with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, this and every other scripture is your holy and inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. Again, would you give us, Lord, please, eyes to see the truth in the scriptures tonight. Would you give us minds to understand it and hearts to embrace and see the truth of your word, especially when it cuts us deep in our own sin and weakness. Hearts to embrace that wills to obey whatever your word would call us to do. Give us all ears to hear. Give me the help that I need to teach. I pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says right there at the end of that passage that in saving those who believe, God, in Paul's words, verses 13 and 14, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. That, that forgiveness is at the root 
It's at the root of our standing and salvation before God. It is the, it's the very description of the redemption that he's talking about. In, 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 in the ESV that I, that I read from, it says, In whom we have redemption, comma, the forgiveness of sins. Basically, another way of writing, in whom we have redemption, namely, specifically, the forgiveness of sins. And, uh, you know, so when, and think about it too. I'm going to ask you to turn to a different place. Flip over to Revelation chapter 7. This is where we started last week. When John describes the scene in heaven um, in Revelation 7, this is where we began last week. Remember, we, uh, remember in Revelation chapter 7, in verse 9, uh, let's look at, look at what we have just in that one verse. Revelation 7, 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they're described as being, in the next phrase, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Clothed with white robes. That's meant to be a symbolic description of our sins having been washed away in order to stand before our holy God and live, right? In, in, in fact, it's the very reason, that that's the very reason given in the text. Just hold your place there. Flip over a page if you need to. Look at the end of uh, Revelation chapter 6. Just to look at the, how the, the chapter right before it ends. John did not put these chapter divisions in here. Somebody did later. So John wasn't like, I was, now I'm finished with chapter 6. Now I'm going to write chapter 7. He was, he was just writing. Okay, So don't let the chapter divisions throw you off. These things are related. right? So at the end of Re- Revelation chapter 6, you have this description uh, of the second coming of Jesus. And it's a harrowing description to say the least. Notice it, it describes in verses 15 and 16 that even the kings of the earth... And the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That should put some of the seeming craziness and perceived weight and disarray of this election series in a little bit of perspective, right? Ain't nobody calling on the mountains to fall on them because some election mess. But this is serious. Like when Jesus comes again, they're like, hide us, hide us. And it ends with this question. It ends with a statement and a question in verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come. And then this this is the question. Who can stand? Right? The day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's the, that's the question. When the great day of the wrath of the Lamb of God comes against all the sinners of this world, who among those sinners will be able to stand in that day? Who can stand? And it's the answer to that question that you have in the next chapter in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, where this multitude of every nation, language, and tribe, and people, how are they presented to us? As standing before the throne and before the Lamb. These are the ones who can stand on the great day of the wrath of God against sin. Why can they stand in that day? Because they have been clothed in white robes. 
Their sins have been forgiven, right? I don't, I don't think we will know fully. I don't think we will know fully until that day when we see with our literal eyes the blinding holiness of God, how beautiful and how merciful that reality is that our sins have been wiped away and how thankful beyond conceivable expression we will be in that day. That's, that's what the white robes are meant to convey in Revelation 7-9, that our sins have been wiped away, forgiven. We are clean, clean. It's intended to draw your mind back to the Old Testament. You don't have to turn there. You might jot it down. It takes your mind back to the Old Testament story. You're, you may have heard before, been familiar with it. I know you're not super familiar with Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, but you may have heard this story in Zechariah chapter 3 where it talks about Joshua, the high priest, standing before the Lord and, and, the, and before the angel of the Lord, it says, and I take that to be a pre-incarnate Jesus, pre-incarnate Christ, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan is there also accusing him and, and accusing them, uh, Joseph of all of his sins. And the angel of the Lord in, the, in Zechariah 3 gives this command about Joseph. He says, remove the filthy garments from him. Along with this explanation, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. That's white robes. That's at the root of the promise of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 34, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. This is partly why we follow the liturgy we do on Wednesday nights. Every single week, we read a, a lofty, exalted passage about our God, followed by a corporate confession of our sins, followed by a silent prayer of confession so that you can get really specific with the Lord about your own sin, so that we come to a passage like this and you hear God say, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. It punches you in a good way. We've already seen, like I said, in previous weeks when we talked about the necessity of the cross that our only, our only hope because of our sins before God is in, and in view of the holiness of God, our, our only hope is in His mercy, which He perfectly showed in the cross specifically to deal with our sins. And as Hebrews 9, 26, and 28 put it, but as it is, Jesus Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, he's already dealt with it, but to save those who are eagerly waiting on him. Through faith in Jesus, the promise of the Bible is at the root of every other blessing in this one is your, your sins are forgiven. Here's what the Heidelberg Catechism, that was a, Catechism of the Reformation era of 1563. Here's what it says about this line of the Apostles' Creed. The question is, what do you believe about the forgiveness of sins? Here's what the Heidelberg Catechism says. I believe that God, because of Christ's atonement, will never hold my, any, against me any of my sins, nor my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. 
Rather, in his grace, God grants to me the righteousness of Christ to free me forever from judgment. So in the leaks, in, in, the, in, the, leaks, in the weeks leading up to this, um, we've already said a lot about the accomplishment of our forgiveness, the accomplishment of it. In other words, the objective foundation of for the forgiveness of our sins. Like the, it's like the Heidelberg Catechism just said. I believe that God, because of Christ's atonement, right, will never hold any of my sins against me. We've said a lot about Christ's atonement and his death, his life and his death and his descent and his resurrection. His, his, the, all the objective realities, what perhaps is left for us to consider for just a few minutes tonight that we maybe we haven't said as much about when we talk about the forgiveness of sins has more to do with the acceptance of our forgiveness. Not the accomplishment of it, but the acceptance of it. In other words, the subjective resting, resting in that objective reality. We've said a lot about the objective reality haven't said as much about the subjective, our resting in it. To put it yet another way, I don't just want to talk about the forgiveness of sins tonight. I want to talk about the entire implied confession, I believe in the, in the forgiveness of sins. That's what I want to talk about. I believe it. So I think, again, what I'm referring to is, is really put for us well in another place in the Heidelberg Catechism. This is question 21. And the question is, what is true faith? What is true faith? This is an answer that's worth committing to memory. True faith is not only a knowledge and a conviction that everything that God reveals to us in his word is true, it is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. Now listen to this. That out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I too. Not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven. Have been made forever right with God and have been granted salvation. Not only others, which is easy for us to believe, but I too, harder for us to believe. And for different reasons. I mean, some of us are, are, are simply prone to doubt and prone to melancholy. No matter how bright the circumstances are around you, you just your natural tendency is just you're kind of just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Right? It's hard for you to hang on internally. It's hard for you, it's just hard. It's just you're not you're just naturally prone to this. It's hard for you to hang on to the to the to, to the certainty of something good. That's hard for some people. And so it may be hard for that reason. You just may be prone to doubt and just have a hard time with hopeful optimism about anything, right? So it's hard to hold on to this, not only for others, but I too have had my sins forgiven. Some of us might be caught in a sin. 
And we know how wrong it is. We know, we know how grieved the Holy Spirit must be with me. If not outright, we might say, it's not outright angry with me. I'm certainly mad at myself. His patience certainly must have long run out if he ever favored me at all. You know how awful your sin is. You know how deep and how seemingly constant your struggle with it is. So it's hard for you to say, not only others, but I too. Some of us just don't have much feelings about anything. You're just not very feely people. I'm not a very feely person. I'm just not. And so it's hard for you to say with deep feeling, which is what you feel like you must have, not only others, but I too. In other words, for that person, a high value in their mind at least is placed on feelings when it, when it comes to faith. And when feelings aren't there, you assume the faith must not be there. There are all kinds of reasons, probably many others that I didn't mention, that make it hard for many of us to say, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven. And with the Apostles' Creed, it's easy to understand the forgiveness of sins, but struggle with the more personal conviction, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And that's what I want us to think about for just a minute. I want to offer three simple truths about, um, about this that hopefully can speak to this struggle many of us face, sometimes feel like we face constantly. And here are the three simple truths I want to remind us of, especially as it pertains to our belief in the most foundational truth of our salvation, the forgiveness of sins. Here's the first one. The Word merits our belief. The Word merits our belief. Two, the Spirit moves our belief. The Spirit moves our belief. The Word merits our belief. The Spirit moves our belief. And third, the church maintains our belief. The church maintains our belief. This is almost going back to the very first week of our study on the creed where we talked about the nature of that threefold acclamation, I believe, I believe, I believe in the creed. We were, but it, it, maybe it's good when we come to the end of the creed now, well, we got one more week left, come to the end of it and, and sort of uh, do that again in some measure as we come near the end of it, thinking about it especially as we consider on, on, on some of a, a specific claim in the creed, the forgiveness of sins. We'll move through these, try to do it quickly, but um, they're pretty straightforward. So let's think first about, we can confidently confess, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, not only for others, but I too have had my sins forgiven because the word merits our belief. The word merits our belief. And by this, I simply mean that the testimony of many, many promises of Scripture I mean, think about some of them. Here are a few verses in Psalm 103. Specifically, this is a compilation of verses 3, 4, 10, and 12 in Psalm 103. It describes God as the one who forgives all your sins, who forgives all your sins and heals, heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities as far as the east is from the west 
so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Or think of Micah 7, 18 and 19. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Or go to the New Testament, Acts 10, 43. To Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Over and over and over again, the promise, the promise of God is that when we believe His promise, we have that which was promised to us, the forgiveness of sins. It is against God alone that we have sinned ultimately. Our hope, if we have any hope, could only come from Him, and He has given it. He promised it to all who simply believe. Sometimes we have a hard time believing this. Many, many times, like I said earlier, it's because we know our sin. And we have a hard time forgiving ourselves, especially when it's a sin that we seem to be caught in, trapped in, committing over and over again. We have a hard time forgiving ourselves, and then we, have, we implicitly impose that upon God. But you see, when we do that, when we do that, I have a hard time forgiving myself, and so I assume God must also. I am creating God in my own image. When He, is, he has told us specifically what He is like. When I might be struggling, I, in my mind, might be struggling to conceive how God could possibly Forgive me, the Bible unchangingly says He crowns you with love and compassion. As far as the east is from the west, who is a God like you forgiving iniquity, who pardons sin? God is not like us. We sin further when we set ourselves up as a better and more reasonable judge than the Lord himself. We cannot, when we cannot conceive how he could have said such things to us, he crowns you with love and compassion. Cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. When we cannot conceive how he could have said such things or how, could they, act, how they could actually apply to me, it, it does not alter the fact that he said them. The promise of God who cannot lie, is there unchangingly, and it merits our belief. Or on the other hand, as I said earlier, we have a hard time believing it because we place too high a value on feelings. But Scripture never says that we are saved by our faith, but through faith. We're not saved by our faith. We're saved through faith. And when we place too high of a value on feelings that may or may not be accompanied with our faith, then perhaps inadvertently we're getting that out of order, believing somehow the assurance and the certainty of our forgiveness is based on the fervency of our faith. 
or on the purity and the perfection of our faith, which is somehow believing that it is by our faith that we are saved rather than the merits of Christ himself that we are forgiven. Don't mistake faith for feelings. Don't mistake correlation for causation. The presence of feelings is not a certainty of the presence of faith. Neither is the absence of feelings a certainty of the absence of faith. Some people need to hear that. Our hearts are desperately sick. Who can understand it, Jeremiah says. There was an incredibly influential Baptist theologian and pastor in the middle of the 19th century. I think he died in the 1860s. His name was Francis Wayland. I want you to listen to what he said in the last week of his earthly life. And we're talking about we're talking about a theologian and a pastor. Old man would see Jesus in a matter of days. I feel that my race is nearly run. I have indeed tried to do my duty. I cannot accuse myself of having neglected any known obligation. Wow. First of all, that's stout. I cannot accuse myself of having neglected any known obligation. That's a dude who lived his life right. Yet all this avails nothing. I place no dependence on anything but the righteousness and death of Jesus Christ. Now listen to this specifically. I have never enjoyed the raptures of faith vouchsafed to many Christians. I do not undervalue these feelings, but it has not pleased God to bestow them upon me. I have, however, a confident hope that I am accepted in the Beloved. So he defines in that passage what he means by the raptures of faith. He defines it in the very next sentence when he calls them feelings. I do not undervalue these feelings. We're talking about an influential pastor and theologian saying it has not pleased God to bestow those feelings, strong feelings on me. And yet he has a confident hope that he is accepted in the beloved because of the righteousness and death of Jesus Christ. Where would he ever get that idea? Where would that kind of assurance come from? Not from feelings, which he did not have, but from the promise of God, which merits our belief. Feelings change. Scripture never changes. Isn't it kind of God that he wrote it down? Isn't it kind of God that he wrote it down for us? But it it gets even better than that because not only does the word merit our belief, the Spirit then, through that word, moves our belief. Spirit moves our belief for the forgiveness of sins. Why is this good news? How How does this give us confidence that not only others, but I too, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. My sins, all my sins. Do you remember what the Heidelberg Catechism said earlier, question 21? It is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. We can know 
that even when we feel weak in faith, that our belief in the gospel isn't something that we conjured up in our own heart and mind, but something that the Holy Spirit of God caused to be in my heart and mind when we heard and hear the gospel message. And hence, he never, the Holy Spirit never starts something that he fails to finish. We've seen that in John's gospel. Jesus talking to Nicodemus that our faith is the gift of God created in us in the Holy Spirit. We saw it in Titus 3, Sunday before last, in, 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 when it says God saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And don't miss what that is. The Spirit moves our faith. He creates that faith in us. Don't miss what that is, bigger picture. That is God drawing you to himself. When we say with Scripture, that the Spirit is who moves our faith in Christ. That is indicating what the disposition of God already is toward you. Even when you hate yourself or when you doubt yourself, when you hear the gospel and you believe it to be true and you want yourself to be in that company, that is because God's favor is already on you from before the foundation of the world and he desires it more than you do. What an assurance to consider when we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And what a gift that we can say, despite every temptation we feel to the contrary, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven. And an even greater gift still, because while the word merits our belief and the spirit moves us, he's given us to each other and to the church to maintain it. The church maintains our belief. And that is simply to say, as we did in week one, the very first week, it is in the context of being a faithful part of a congregation of believers of all different generations, of all different kinds of people. That it's in this context that we grow in assurance of our faith and we're spurred on to perseverance and to love and good works. And when we say the Apostles' Creed together here on Wednesday night, we're doing it together like we're making it personally to the Lord, but we're, we're also doing it in the presence of one another. And, and so it's, and we do that knowing that God is not simply saving me, he's saving us. And he does it through the working of his own sovereignty, his own mighty hand, but he also uses us to sanctify each other. And, and our faithful participation in the local church, think about it, just singing with each other, praying with each other for one another, hearing the scripture preached again and again and again, and participating in the ordinances together. I know we haven't been able to safely, in a pandemic, take the Lord's Supper together. But do you know that when, 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 when we watch, when, when, when a baptism takes place here, don't, don't th- you're not just a spectator. You're not just watching it happen. I mean, you kind of are. But it's more than that. Like, if you are a member of this church, what, what is taking place in that baptism is, is that one is becoming a part of the many here. Like he is joining you. She is joining you when they're being baptized. So it's like you're watching, but you're kind of in your heart, you got open arms. You know what I'm saying? Like that's, that, we got two ordinances. We got, we got baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism brings the one into the many and then the Lord's Supper takes the many and brings them one because we're sharing that meal together, right? 
participating in the ordinance, in the church being held accountable to one another, by one another, serving each other. It builds our faith over time deeper and more sturdy, not just to understand Christ, but to understand ourselves and to understand his gospel so that the things over time, because we're not going it alone, like we're going this together in the church, over time, the things that used to shake our faith, they're not as frightening and threatening as they used to be. We just grow sturdy with each other over time. We neglect the church to our own hurt and our own harm. So let's just wrap it up and say this. Through the promise of Scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the church in your life, the promise of Scripture, the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the church, basic, basic, basic things. If all of those things are present in your life, there is no reason why we cannot objectively and subjectively say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Not only for others, but mine too.